0: Good morning. Good morning. How's your weekend going? My weekend is going great. I got to work today. Pretty happy about that. And here's why I get to see your beautiful faces, and I get to open up the word of the Lord with you. I am excited about that. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. Uh, we're coming to a close on our series in Revelation. Here's what I will tell you about today. One of the many things I'll tell you about today. As we get to the end of Revelation, it's almost like the puzzle pieces start getting pushed together on the table, and it starts to show a big picture. And so I'm excited for that today. So parents, and you don't even have to be a parent to know this one, what do you hear in your car, because it's vacation season, what do you hear in your car while you're driving to wherever you're driving to, grandma's house, the beach, whatever, And you're about two hours in. What do you hear from at least one, if not every single one of your kids? Are we there yet? yet? How much longer is this going to take? Why are you torturing me with a 10-hour drive, mom and dad? Yes, I too, as a little one, would say that. Here's what my dad would tell me, typical dad joke. He'd say, hey, Jace, what did the monkey say when his tail got run over by the train? You guys know this one? It won't be long now, or ouch, yes. And so that was his horrible dad joke that he would throw back at me every single time. I had so many questions, like, why was a monkey have his tail on a train track? Did he not hear the train? Was he asleep? How did it, yeah, so I just didn't get it, and it really made me mad. It won't be long now, yes. Let me read this to you as Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is with his disciples before he ascends. Basically, they say the same thing. So when they come together, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and on and on and on. I'm tired. The disciple's like, we've been through so much for the last three years, Jesus. You were in the grave, and then you came out, and now we get that, we think. You're the risen Christ. So are you going to restore the kingdom to us now? He's like, don't worry about that. The kingdom's here. Worry about the power that I'm going to give you to be my witnesses. Not the answer. That was a little bit like what did the monkey say when his tail got run over. It's not what they asked. We're tired of evil. I'm tired of death. I'm tired of my family members dying. I'm tired of people getting cancer. I'm tired of mental illness. I'm tired of dementia. I'm tired of a conflict in culture. I'm tired of a conflict in the church we want evil to end now. We want the kingdom to be restored now. So what chapter 20 of Revelation does is it gives you a vivid picture of the how, the when, the what, and the what now of evil coming to a final end. You need to see this. You need to hear it. It may challenge what you thought Revelation had said. So I hope you're up for that. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to jump right into it. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we say the same thing that your disciples have said. When are you going to do this? Because in so many ways, it feels like nothing has happened post-resurrection and ascension. In so many ways, it feels like the Spirit has been poured out, and yet we suffer and there's division and there's trouble and there's death and it feels so much like the desert lord we trust you and we are here to hear from you so we pray that you would open up your word that we might behold its treasure lord and worship you in fullness in the name of jesus amen revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 15 Pro tip, this is the beginning of the seventh section. So you can expect chapter 20 to begin all over an explanation from the ministry of Jesus to his return. Remember, this is not chronological. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. "'holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit "'and a great chain. "'And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, "'who is the devil and Satan, "'and bound him for a thousand years, "'and threw him into the pit and shut it "'and sealed it over him, "'so that he might not deceive the nations any longer "'until the thousand years were ended. "'After that, he must be released for a little while. "'Then I saw thrones, and seated on those thrones,' To whom the authority to judge was committed. And also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for worshiping the beast and its image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. It's a theme there. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11 Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Any questions? <laughs> All right, friends, I'm going to do something different than what I normally do with text. What, I, what we need to do is, be, because Revelation chapter 20 has so much ink spilled on it, And for the most part, it sets your hermeneutic or how you understand all of Revelation. And it centers around this idea of the millennium or the thousand years. So what I'm going to do before I even walk through the text, we're going to take some time and I'm going to give you some three to four ways that the church has traditionally understood this millennium or thousand years. And then I'm going to show you what I believe it says and we'll walk through the text to get an understanding of what God has for us, how evil actually ends. So I want you to know that this is one of the reasons churches don't preach Revelation. One of the reasons that you don't read it is because there's so much, there seems to be so much complexity and confusion in how things actually unfold in real time. It's just not worth it. Because what if you get it wrong? So most people steer clear of Revelation, which is a tragedy. We need it more than ever, because the ending matters. Hey, I'm going to give you some charts. We're going to walk through them together. Uh, don't worry, you don't have to write it down. We will post it on our website under the Community Group Study Guide, probably on Tuesday, so that you can get them. So let me walk through how people have traditionally understood Revelation chapter 20, specifically as it deals with this thousand years, okay? So the first one we're going to put up is historical pre-millennial. Yeah, we're going there. So just, it sounds very technical. It's not. It's just... How do we understand this 1,000-year reign of Christ? So what I want you to understand about historical pre-millennial, the word pre is very important. And millennial just means 1,000 years. So by the name, you can understand that this viewpoint, your understanding of a Revelation, sees Jesus coming back physically before he reigns for a 1,000 years physically on earth. Do you hear me? This is, this is a popular view. It actually has historical precedent in the church. I think Irenaeus and some others said, yeah, that seems to be what Scripture is teaching us. So he returns physically for a literal thousand years. That would be the return of Jesus. So, one of the things that, so you see that the text here is like this is the cross, this is the life and ministry of Jesus. This would be the 1,000-year reign. Jesus comes back, reigns physically for 1,000 years, and then there's the consummation or the judgment day, the making all things new, heavens and earth judging. So one of the things that this, this viewpoint would tell you is that during that 1,000-year reign, there will be uncommon peace and prosperity and joy, as you might expect if Jesus was on the scene physically reigning on the world. Okay, so that's pre-millennial. That's historical pre-millennial. Has anybody heard of that before? Three. Okay, we're going to go to the next one. I bet you've heard of this one a little bit more. It's a version of pre-millennial idea of how this works out. This is I'm going to call this dispensational premillennial. Now, before I get to how this under, how you understand this, you have to understand this comes from a dispensational idea of how the entire Bible works together. Now, before I before I before you think I'm deconstructing all these just to make you mad, these are all within the bounds of orthodoxy. So if if you're like, well, okay, you you showed me one that you don't think is an act, is the best way to understand it. This is not heresy. We're trying to understand how to make the most of it. So don't know before you send an email. Dispensational is the idea of this. Throughout the Bible, God dispenses, do you get the word? He dispenses salvation to different ages or different groups of people differently. So a dispensationalist might say, well, there's the age of innocence with Adam and Eve, and God would save them in one way. There was the age of the law from Moses all the way maybe through the prophets, and God would save Israel a certain way, and then there was the age of grace, and on and on. And the age of grace would be maybe the church age, and he would save us in a different way than he would save Israel. So it's this idea of dispensations that God saves people differently throughout history. Um, I, don't, I don't stand here. Um, I, I think one of the reasons that I don't is because it, it really gives a lot of discontinuity to salvation. I would really want to see covenant theology, right? God makes one big promise, Genesis 3.15, he's going to crush the serpent, and that promise gets bigger and bigger fulfillments all the way through Christ. Everything leads up to him. So dispensationalism, uh, let me tell you the types of things that you will see in this. Um, There's a big distinction between Israel and the church, Israel is seen as a distinct body of believers, and the church, us, the New Testament believers, would be seen distinct, related, but distinct from Israel. That's why if I was preaching from a dispensational viewpoint, when I was talking about the 144,000 around the throne, that probably would have been just historic, ethnic Israel, not you. Now, we take a different view. That represents all of God's people, the entire church, if you will, for all time. Um, just a little bit of history on this. This is a very, very new idea. The church has never really believed this until 1900s or so. Uh, maybe you've heard of an American theologian by the name of Schofield. Uh, he wrote a Bible, the Schofield Reference Bible, or study Bible. Um, he was right around the turn of the century, the 1900s. And he, this view, which we'll talk about briefly, came from that Bible for the most part. Uh, and the idea was that, hey, we're... T- It was a good idea. We're tired of people turning the Bible into an an allegory. And so the idea of dispensationalism was, let's be true to Scripture. Let's believe every word that it says. So the intent was very good, but my belief is that it, it it disregards the genre of revelation, which is apocalyptic literature. It's not meant to be read the way that a dispensationalist might receive it. So what are the types of things you would see in this? Um, Well, let's get to the chart. So here's Jesus. They believe in a rapture. Is there biblical precedence for that? Some, right? There's an invisible rapture where the church will disappear. Um, Then there's a seven-year tribulation, Now, you know, we're getting this from Revelation because it talks about, um, and Daniel, times, times, and half a time, or the 42 months, which is three and a half years, uh, the 1260 days, which is seven years. Again, we're understanding that as... The fullness of history, and during that time, the millennium, the reign of God's people, and the persecution won't be forever. It's only going to be for three and a half years. A dispensationalist would say that's a literal seven-year tribulation. Some people say the church is raptured here, some people say it's here, some people say it's here. But at the end of this tribulation, Jesus comes back, and again, it's pre-millennial. Jesus reigns physically on the earth for 1,000 years until its consummation. And there's different versions of this. So if you're standing here and you're like, you're not explaining it right, I'm probably not. But this is the big idea. What's interesting about this is they believe that there's, Jesus comes back and he reestablishes a theocracy in Israel. He becomes the king in Jerusalem and he reestablishes Israel um, as God's nation. So if you're standing here, there's an, a, a very big preoccupation with Palestine. Anything that happens in Israel is super important, because the belief here is that the temple has got to be established again. Jesus will not come back, um, there won't be a judgment until the temple's reestablished, the actual temple where sacrifices happen, because they would believe that's how Jews are going to be saved and brought into the kingdom through the sacrificial system again. Now, w- without unpacking all of that, here's big version why I don't like that. Hebrews is very clear, right? Hebrews chapter 10. Let me just turn to that. The law and the sacrifice were a blueprint. They're not the substance of Jesus. Jesus is the substance, right? It says, um, this is, man, I just got new glasses, and they don't work when I'm reading. So um, chapter 10 of Hebrews But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 14 of 10. For by a single offering, he, that's Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, animal sacrifices have never saved anyone. It's always faith in the coming king. There's no way for Israel to, to, re, to realize salvation outside of Jesus as their sacrifice. In fact, as we get to, I think it's Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, it talks about Jesus being the temple. I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord our God. Jesus is the true temple. So, I'm going to also, this view although it's very novel, was popularized by the Left Behind series, the books. I read them. It's basically a science fiction series. came out in the mid-'90s, based roughly on Revelation chapter 20. Um, And so if you've you've never been to church before, you probably have heard something like this or saw the movies. Right, Kirk Camion, Nick Cage? I like the Nick Cage version. Um, Anyway, this is very popular in the church. This is where most American Christians sit. Um, And so we've built our hermeneutic from the movie and from the book. I just don't think it's the best understanding of it, but it is the majority view. All right, next one: post-millennial. This is a lot less popular, um, but I think it's closer to what this text is actually saying in all of Revelation. So it's simpler. Jesus has his ministry at some point because the text says that Satan is bound. Did you see that? First it says an angel came back and chained him and put him in the abyss. And then it says he's bound and released for a little bit. So they would say at some point Satan is bound and then there's a thousand-year reign of Christ. Here's what's different. It's post-millennial. So Jesus comes back after the thousand-year reign physically and it's judgment day. He remakes the heavens and the earth. I think that's getting closer. Uh, The question is, what what I don't like about this is it decouples the binding of Satan from the cross? It sees it as two different events, and Jesus didn't see it that way, and I don't think we should as well. I understand it because the text is a little confusing if you're not used to reading this apocalyptic literature. But Jesus doesn't rule physically on the earth, he rules from heaven with his church, both those who are dead and those who are not. And many people don't see it as a, they see it as a non-literal thousand years. It's just an age. Um, and it's, but here's what's interesting. They, they would say that Christianity experiences a golden age or this, this, this beautiful, like the gospel spreads over the entire world. Every culture is infected with the gospel. And it, like basically God's law goes everywhere and people start living by it. Uh, and so there's exponential gospel growth and then maybe the entire world becomes believers. Um, the last one, and this—I'm just going to tell you up front. This is where I sit. This is where our church sits, and I think it's the, the best understanding of the entire Bible, let alone Revelation 20. It's also the most boring one. All millennial. So awe, ah, think asymptomatic. You don't have symptoms. All millennial. There's not a thousand-year millennium. In other words, we're in it. You're not waiting for anything. If you were born after the ministry of Jesus, you're not waiting for a millennium. You're in it, right? So, what it does is the kingdom of God and this millennial reign are coincidental, they're together. So, the the life, death, ministry of Jesus established the kingdom. Oh, by the way, did Jesus ever say that? What did Jesus tell people when they claimed he was Satan because he was casting out demons? What did he say? And then you're like, when well, you really want me to say that? I'll read it to you. He said, Hey, but it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter, keyword, a strong man's house, and plunder his goods unless first he binds the strong man? Binding of Satan. How can I establish the kingdom if my life, death and work don't actually bind the strong man that is Satan? He was giving them. He's like, "No, you're you're calling me Satan. I'm actually the king. I'm the Christ. I bring the kingdom with me." So, a millennial shows the kingdom as coming with Jesus. He rules heaven from heaven. For a non literal thousand years, n- almost nothing in Revelation in apocalyptic literature is, is literal when it comes to the numbers. So we, d- we should be careful to start saying a thousand is literal, right? Understand why, but it's just not what it preaches. Um, so he reigns from heaven with the church. For a non-little thousand years, it coincides directly with the kingdom of God. The millennium is the age between the resurrection of Jesus and his return. We've been saying this the whole time. And Satan is bound by Jesus' earthly ministry. And what you should be saying is, well, I don't know, because aren't bad things happening? How can Satan be bound? Well, let's look carefully. What is he bound from doing? Bound him, threw him into a pit that he may not deceive the nations. Here's the best way I've heard this explained from my seminary professor. If you had a dog that was tearing up your flowers and you didn't want your flowers teared up, you'd probably put him on a leash, and that leash is going to be short enough so he can't get to your flower bed. Now he can bark, he can bite, he can dip at your lawn, but he's not going to touch those flowers. So the binding of Satan by the text, it's blatantly in there, is so that the great commission can go out, right? Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given me. The millennium's here. Go out and make disciples. Who are disciples? Who are followers of God before Jesus? Ethnic Israel. Where has the, some Egyptians, there were people within Palestine as well. But there was no proliferation of the gospel, the ministry of Jesus binds Satan. The gospel goes to the ends of the earth, which is what they were asking in Acts. It goes up by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if there were no binding of the enemy, because his, his M.O. Is, is just deception, right? It's just deception. He's not deceiving the nations. You, you know why I'm preaching on the Bible today in North America? Because that verse is true. I'm not from Palestine, I'm not ethnic Israel. The Gospels come to North America because Satan's been bound. And understand, again, but I thought they said he was going to be chained. He's not literally chained. There's not a literal abyss. Remember, Revelation is not looking at some future newsreel. It's not how apocalyptic literature works. Think Think about the dreams of Joseph in Egypt. He would dream like sick cows came out of the water and ate the healthy cows. That never happened. It was a famine. So the vivid literature and the vivid um, images in Revelation do point to true things, but we have to be careful that we don't literalize those things. So Amelino, this is where where I stand. It's the most boring one, but to me it makes the most sense, and it makes sense of Jesus' words. Same word for binding. No one can plunder his house unless the strong man is bound first. Same word we have right here in Revelation, that the angel came down from heaven, but the key to the bottom of the sick great chain, he seized the dragon and bound him for a 1,000 years. Okay. Wow, that was a lot. But I really want to say this, and I really want to bring it up to you because we haven't had a chance to do this in Revelation. We really haven't had the history to do it. We've been through most of the book. We've taught this, but this brings the puzzle together. All right, I want to st- I, I feel like this is more explanation and lecture than a preaching, but I'm sorry, we got to do this. I almost feel like I'm going to take questions, but we don't have time. So now, with this viewpoint in mind, that Jesus comes, establishes the kingdom, that is the millennium. Now, how does history unfold? It tells us. So I'm going to show you just a few things. First, if you're Like, well, wait a minute. Chapter 20 begins Jesus, begins the whole story of the gospel again? Yes. One of the ways I can tell you that is chapter 19 and chapter 20 talk about the same battle. How is this? Everybody in chapter 19, all the enemies of God are dead. How are they killed again in chapter 20? It starts over in chapter 20. It's a different camera angle. It's a replay. And both of them quote Ezekiel chapter 38 and chapter 39. Talking about Gog and Magog, talking about non-literal enemies, right, are going to align real people, real nations, real leaders, real antichrists, and eventually an antichrist aligning against God's people. So know that verse 20 starts this this scene all over again. And you see this in movies, right? Right? Sometimes, like you're saying, meanwhile, back at the ranch, this is happening. And then it cuts over here. And then we go back to that again. That's exactly what's happening here. So as we open up chapter 20, you should expect to see Jesus' earthly ministry begin all over again. So what does he do? He brings the kingdom. How is it explained here? An angel who holds the key to basically death and Hades, which Jesus held in the beginning of Revelation. So who holds it? Right, it's it's a different viewpoint, different explanation. The same thing binds Satan, so that he cannot deceive the nations. How did that happen, Jesus? Jesus was casting out demons. He was overcoming evil. He does that. So Jesus brings the kingdom. He brings the kingdom. Secondly, Jesus reigns with his church. So what's happening during this 1,000-year reign? Well, first of all, we're in it. I like it um, when the New Testament Paul talks about the church as an, an embassy and we are ambassadors. That's the idea of the earthly reign of Christ. Jesus is on station at the right hand of the Father, bodily, right now, reigning over all of history, specifically with saints that have died and with his church. So it talks about two things here. Let's just unpack that. First it says, I saw thrones and seated on these thrones to whom authority to judge was committed. So this is not the throne that God holds. In the beginning of Revelation, we saw these elders and the, the creatures around, on thrones around the great throne. These are God's people. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years What is he talking about? Friends, when you come to faith in Jesus, scripture teaches you, right? We'll just use the same author, John. You go from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So these are specifically, because it it gives us an idea, Um, Those who've been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, who would not worship the beast or its image. These are believers. Specifically, those who had gone to be with the Lord. Those who bodily are dead, but are in heaven now with Jesus reigning. What does that look like? I don't know. It doesn't tell us that. So I think it extends, resurrection extends from new life, even as Paul says we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ right now, that extends from here all the way up into those, who, those Christians that have died are reigning with Christ now. No different than really we are. But they're no longer experiencing sin and separation and death. That is the first resurrection. That resurrection extends from faith and more specifically into death. So if a Christian dies today, they experience a resurrection. It's spiritual. They are with the Lord. And then there's a final resurrection, and everybody gets that. You see it at the end. You know, everybody is resurrected bodily. It says it. Um, Death and Hades gave up the dead. Great and small, everybody stands before the the great white throne and is judged but it says that those who have experienced the first resurrection, that second death or judgment has no power over them. They don't suffer that. So Jesus brings the kingdom. He reigns with his church. And just like there's a spiritual resurrection, which is situational, there's a final and ultimate resurrection when Jesus comes back and glorifies our bodies and judges the living and the dead. There's also a spiritual death, if you will, and an eternal death, a second death. One's proximate, one's ultimate. So Jesus brings the kingdom, he reigns with his church, and then he, he returns to reward his, hear this, Jesus returns, and when he returns, well, the graph's not up there, I don't know why I keep turning around, um, he returns to bring the new heavens and the new earth He judges creation and everyone who's ever walked this globe. And he rewards his saints. Wait, I thought Christians weren't judged. You are. Uh, You are before the great white throne. Everyone great and small. Well, I don't know if I like that. Well, let me tell you how 2 Corinthians 5.8 says. Yes, we are of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether you are at home or away, make it your aim to please him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of you may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Like, Wait a minute. I thought we were saved by grace through faith. You are. This is the beauty of it. For the believer, your judgment is to reward. Jesus has erased your sin. It's as far as from the east as from the west but everything you do in this life has eternal significance. If you have a kid, you probably have a finger painting up on the refrigerator that's awful. Sorry, kids. Why'd you put it up there? It means something to you. It was done out of love, and it's beautiful, and you reward them for it. When your kid take, takes one step at a year old, you don't say, ah, you're never gonna make the football team. You're like, yay. This is, God's grace is wild. He actually celebrates and rewards you for the work you've done in faith. And most of it's invisible at this throne. And everybody else is, depart from me. And you see that Satan gets judged, right? Here's something that's a little odd. He's released towards the end of history to deceive the nations again. Why would that I don't know. Satan is publicly defeated. It's almost like a criminal being let out of the cell to go have his trial. But what he does is he has the power to deceive the nations. It's gonna be harder to be a believer during this season. And nations will align against God and his people. And churches will divide. Is that now? Feels like it to me. But no one could ever know. But he ends up, Satan ends up, like with those from last chapter, the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire. Hell. And all those whose names weren't in the book of life. Right? There's two books. We're all there. Those whose names aren't in the book of life spend and eternity separated from God with them. Friends, we all want evil to end. What you need to see from right here, and I mean you need to see it, because life is getting harder and harder. Evil ends when Christ returns. When Jesus comes back, evil is over. And I cannot wait for it. When he comes back, the kingdom of darkness is finished. No more death. No more tears. Creation is remade. And this is what the rest of Revelation shows us, is the beauty and the power and the delight that God has in making all things New. Evil ends when Christ returns. So, my ask for you after we've gone through all this technical stuff and it all matters, would you live different today if you knew Jesus was coming back on Friday? It could happen at any moment. The gospel's gone out, circled the globe. Friends, Would you live differently today if you knew Jesus was coming back on Friday? That's a hard question to answer. Well, I don't know if my name is in the book of life. Pastor Nate Wagner just said, Jesus casts away no one who comes to him. Come to him. The stakes are high, friends. The stakes are high. He will receive you. He forgives sin. He casts away. His blood takes care of that. And as we go through the rest of Revelation, you see the beauty and the power of his new creation, which is essentially a gift to you. Man, get in on that. I know we can have differences on how we interpret things in Revelation. That's important. But you need to know, when he returns, it's over. Right? And he calls us to live, and his disciples. Hey, don't worry about the time. It's going to It's going to be quicker than you think. So live like that. Live like the end is now. Receive the grace that he has for you. Okay. I need to pray for us. (laughs) Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. Uh, Some of these things are complicated. Even your word says that. What's not complicated, Lord, is that Your love for us has gone to extreme lengths to redeem us. We want evil to end, and so I pray that evil ends in our lives today. I pray that we would receive the gift of grace that you have and walk in newness of life, be convinced that our sin is covered, and be longing for that day where we are with you. And that you justly judge every sin, every everything that's destroyed this world. So we submit to you as Christ, as King, as Messiah, as King of King, and Lord of Lords. Even so, come soon. In the name of Jesus, amen.